This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that can never be accused of not having its favourites. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm excellent. I'm pretty good this morning. Partly because I've had three coffees, and partly because I'm excited to be here with you. I'm very excited to be here with you. And not without any coffees, it's good. Uh, I, I, I had my shot of coffee, you know. I had oh, probably like four shots of coffee in the morning. So, <laughs> this, is, this is our best time, fools. You're getting the very best of us. By after lunch, we'll be uh, asleep on the floor. But for now, we are bringing you a chock full Motley Fool podcast. Last week went a little bit long, so we're going to try and um, try and bring it back down to a more reasonable level. And we're going to start talking about a few things. Firstly, the big macro. Lots and lots of macro news this week, Doc. Also, telco shenanigans, some changes afoot for TPG and Telstra and Optus by by, uh, extension. We're also going to just quickly touch on the Banking Royal Commission. The report is out on Monday afternoon. I I saw uh, 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 Jessica Irvine from Fairfax describe this as a report of Tolkien proportions. So we'll we'll touch on that very quickly. We'll probably do a fuller deep dive next week after Mm -hmm. the the, uh, Royal Commission's out. I will, unfortunately, because I feel like I'm obliged to ask you about two of your favourite companies. But well, you should. We might keep that short. And uh, and, <laughs> and we will dip so, into so the So on the Royal Commission, do you think he's, is it going to be full of questions like last time? You are jumping ahead. We'll oh, I would love to talk about questions and no we answers. Will, we will get to that. Before <laughs> we do, let's talk about the big macro. Mate, a few key data points and mm. kind of, the, it's a global perspective triangulating into something maybe not great, maybe okay, maybe pretty reasonable. Mm -hmm. The first thing that we want to talk about was the inflation numbers that came out in Australia this week. The numbers were, depending on who you ask, better than they were, less Mm -hmm. than expected, uh, appropriate, weak, Kind of, it was it was it was a uh, an inflation read for the confirmation bias seekers. Everyone seemed to have a view on the inflation numbers, and to a person, what I saw based on the news and social media, to a person, they all seemed to kind of agree with their previously held. Uh, So either that means the inflation numbers were interesting or maybe even just completely worthless or maybe our economists and commentators aren't really thinking. They're just simply reverting to type, sticking with their current preconceptions. Any thoughts from you on the inflation numbers? I don't know. Under control is is the way I would say, right? I mean, if um, we we don't have uh, inflationary and a strongly inflationary environment, which is is good. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, costs are under control. well, this is the weird thing, right? So for, for the longest time, you and I grew up in a, in a society where trying to get inflation under, trying to get it down was the key task of most central banks. Right now, the OEA is having trouble getting it up to a decent level. Well, you want wage increases to happen. You know, people like wages to go up. Right, <laughs> inflation right. goes up, wages go up. People think make, they make more money. So yeah, so, so uh, it's all it's all <laughs> it's all voodoo. <laughs> well, it's gone, so it was up, it was up one point eight percent for the year. Up 1.9% in the quarter, just under the RBA's target band, as they like to call it, of 2 to 3%. So mm. the RBA would say, look, we'd like to have a little bit higher, please, if you don't mind. Mm. But as you say, kind of a number that doesn't really say the economy's in a whole lot of trouble, but nor is it particularly, well, not in trouble either way, right? We're not, we're not in deflationary times. And for those who maybe haven't studied the economics, deflation can be as painful, maybe even more painful than inflation when it happens. But of yep. course, hyperinflation is also terrible. And we know the, the stories of 1930s Germany, the Weimar Republic with barrel falls of, of banknotes being wheeled down the street. But so that's why the two to three percent is important. Mm. Less than two, RBS not happy. More than three, they're not particularly happy. Mm. So look, that was that was. Well, we call it a draw. Can we call it a draw? Can we call oh, well, it you know, well, what's one point nine percent rounded up? It's two. <laughs> Among friends, there you go. We'll, we'll call that a tick. It's a tick. I, I think, given the environment, given the economic settings, I think it was probably a decent number without particularly pleasing anybody. It's the same almost everywhere, right? All the numbers look like yeah, this, yeah. right? You know, and and I would say this is better. <laughs> this is closer to target band than in many places. We'll take it. You know, we'll t- we should take. Oh, it. man, that's it. You know, I 
I've said I haven't said for a while, but I, I, I used to say for a long time. For all of our problems, most companies, what most countries would kill oh, yeah. Australia's problems, right? Absolutely. <laughs> all right, let's move on over the Pacific this time mm-hmm. to the United States, where overnight we're recording this on a Thursday because we'll be in Melbourne at a Motley Fool Platinum event tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But uh, overnight, so Wednesday night, the U.S. Fed came out and have basically said, "Look, we're not going to raise rates for now." And maybe we're going to be a little bit lighter on than we were previously going to be. I think um, Jerome Powell, the US Fed chief, said that the rationale for raising rates was weakening, I think was the word he Mm -hmm, used. mm -hmm. Um, Again, it's kind of one of those scenarios where if you don't want higher interest rates in your mortgage, you probably think, oh, thank God. On the other hand, it kind of talks to the fact that maybe the US economy isn't as strong as we previously mm. thought. It's one of those, again, careful what you wish for scenarios, mm. right? So, I mean, GDP growth has been, you know, strong for a developed economy for, uh, in the US. Hasn't it? Yeah. But, but again, inflation has been non-existent. You know, people mm. thought that inflation is coming. Maybe it's rearing its head and maybe it's going to, you know, uh, but it, it looks like, you know, there was like sort of, you know, there's no consistent trend here to suggest that, you know, we have strong inflation here. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think he maybe you know, uh, he's saying, well, I'm going to let the data speak, mm. right? And if there is inflation, then, then I, you know, or if I see that there are signs of inflation, then I'll, I'll act on it. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know, on balance seems like a sort of thoughtful thing to do. Mm. And, uh, you know, the rates, I mean, I mean from, in their pers- from their U.S. perspective, the rates were basically zero, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And, and they're not zero. That's low, anymore. right? That's very, very low, right? Well, in some countries like Japan, it was negative. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so if you compare, maybe they're better <laughs> off. So it, it just depends on who you want to compare it's with, right? It's all relative. It's all relative. So I, I think in relative basis, you know, now they're, you know, their rates are higher than our rates, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, they've pushed the rates up, which gives them some flexibility. If they need to push the rates down, they can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being slow and steady, that doesn't, you know, the financial market sort of like that instead of, you know, uh, somebody telling them, oh, we're going to increase the rates a lot. Uh, so, some readjustment maybe in what people were thinking. I personally, the stock market was up massively overnight. Well, I mean, you know, as they said, Dow was up, what, 400 points or something. 2%, point. close so, enough to? Almost 2%. Jeez. I wouldn't call that massive. On a daily move? Well, come on, 20% is How often massive. How is the market up 2%? Almost every day, it's either up two percent or down two percent, right? <laughs> there is that. There is that. So the markets always move like that. Uh, I mean, you know, um, I, I think I was thinking twenty nineteen that they would continue increasing, mm-hmm. and, and this is sort of um, against what I thought would happen. So you yeah. know, there goes my prediction or ability to predict. <laughs> yeah. um, I was thinking it's going to increase, but hey. What do I know? Who predicts stuff? I've got to say, I, I'll be on record. I'm an optimist by nature. I'm on record. I will be on record as saying I'm concerned about the US not increasing rates further. These are still at expansionary levels, not quite neutral yet. And it does worry me that to some degree, Alan Greenspan was a genius until everyone realized he wasn't in the, with the virtue of hindsight because he created a, an asset bubble, a stock market bubble, a, a, frankly, an economic bubble that, that we had to pay the price of in the late 1990s, early 2000s. We all are aware of that. I remain concerned that central banks right around the world are too worried about the downside risks and not worried enough, if you like, about the upside risks or the long-term risks that they might just be creating circumstances and conditions that actually require a crash at the end to kind of get back under control. I'd, mm. I'd much prefer them to be a little more aggressive with rate rises and then wind them back if they need to rather than not go at all because that's – uh, I, th- I think most of the central bank governors are fighting the last war. They're so nervous about the GFC. They're desperate mm. to avoid it again, and I get it. I worry that they're sowing the seeds of the next downturn instead. But, but I'll, I'll add, in, in his, uh, in Apollo's defense, though, they're better placed than, for example, RBA, right? Mm-hmm. They have increased rates 
and and they have, you know they they're not saying that they're going to cut rates they're yeah, saying yeah, they're going to stay steady right sure. so it's it's a better situation they are in than they could have been if they had not increased rates at all if i was the rbi pushing rates up as well no also I mean, I mean that's what I mean, that's my point right so the <laughs> rbi sitting yeah. sitting on low yeah. rates is actually you know giving us less cushion yeah, totally. for for difficult times right and, and more Which, importantly to my mind at least not so much the downside risk but actually creating the conditions for Asset price to get out of control. Yeah, that's what, you know. It's not so much that. I mean, it is partly to your point. They've got less ammunition if things get bad. I'm worried though that they're actually and like Greenspan price, yeah. was. It was the fact they kept prices too low for too long. Yeah. They actually caused the asset price inflation yep. in the first place. Housing. Let's let's. Well, speaking of housing, let's very very quickly because we talked about macro for a little bit. Yes. One more data point you raised this morning you wanted to talk about is is the potential slowing down of China. We've seen some U.S. companies report mm. either reasons or excuses depending on what ends up being the case. Right. Either it's a, either it's a convenient excuse or it is genuinely a problem. China's GDP growth is slowing ever so slightly from six point five to six point four percent. Um, to some degree, you, you mentioned there was some rumours that the Chinese government was uh, instructing people to sell U.S. property and bring the cash home. Mm. How worried are you about a Chinese slowdown? Uh, you know, I'm a bit worried. So, I mean, a couple of things. The 6.4, like, you know, if we, if we got 6.4, I don't know which, <laughs> which planet. We would probably have already moved to the moon, right? Not from uh, yeah, you'd be in Mars or somewhere. Yeah. You'd be, you know, civilizing, uh, you know, building civilization in Mars. So, <laughs> so going from 6.5 to 6.4, is not, I think the predictions out there for 2019 actually mm. are for... Um, um, a more generous slowdown. <laughs> so, so maybe, you know, uh, dropping to six or maybe mm. even below six, right? Mm. So that's one. But those are predictions, you know, who knows the real thing. Yep. Um, off a big base, I mean, we have to think that it's, it's a huge base. That number is the second largest, you know, in terms of GDP, yep. right? So, um, so, so those things are important. Mm. The the thing that caught my eye was a couple of you know few company announcements. A number of companies have pointed out slowdown in China as a concern. Um, Apple pointed out, Caterpillar pointed out, 3M pointed out. So that's a range of different types of companies. Mm-hmm. We also have to remember that not many companies actually have free range access to the uh, to the Chinese market, right? Yep. So those that have are, are complaining about some situations. So that's one. Um, co- combine that with the uh, with the pullback of cash, as you noted, from uh, U.S. real estate property. Right. Mm. Um, so the the Australian connection here is that if if the if they start doing something similar here, that might have an impact on our housing market, for example, mm. right? And of course, they are you know one of our largest trading partners, so that has an impact as well. So, so something to be mindful of. It's something to be mindful of. I wouldn't be concerned, but you know, I'd watch it. Mm-hmm. I think the economically in Australia, it, it, that, that my big concern for the economy is not so much anything internal, but some external shock. And, and certainly a, a big slowdown in China with a commensurate reduction, for example, their demand for our iron ore or yeah. other industrial commodities could be a problem. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And from that to telco shenanigans, the, the gift mm-hmm. that keeps on giving. I know your favourite company is Telstra. You mentioned that a lot. Boom. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's let's very just quickly talk about what happened earlier this week. We saw TPG come out and say, you know, that data only mobile network we're building in Canberra. Mm. Yeah, that's not going to happen anymore because the hardware provider we're going to use, Huawei. Um, who people may have heard of, if you follow the news, have been banned from providing 5G infrastructure by the Australian government. Um, and TPG was using their infrastructure to create a 4G network that was easily upgradable. I don't claim to know the software or hardware behind it, but apparently it was easily upgradable to a 5G network. Mm-hmm. TPG says, look, without that, we can't possibly go ahead. 
Of course, at the same time, they're pursuing a Vodafone, a merger with Vodafone, mm-hmm. which may have well have created overlapping and therefore redundant infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So you can either be an optimistic or a pessimist. You can be a cynic or a uh, or, or, or an innocent. Um, of course, on the news, Telstra shares went up, speaking of big jumps, 7.8% on the day that was announced. TPG shares fell slightly. Telstra's back in the investors' good books. Now, easy to kind of see at some level, hey, less competition means higher share price for Telstra, less competition, all that kind of good stuff. Mm. What say you about the TPG changes and how we should think about the telco sector moving forward? So I, I think it makes complete sense, right? And the moment they decided they're going to merge, I mean, and that from that point on, it made no sense for them to actually build a network. Yeah. They have a lot of back- Assuming it was approved by the ACCC. Yeah, and, 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 and one of the things that ACCC, you know, in, uh, uh, Mr. Simmons, you know, he pointed out that one of their concerns was exactly that, that, you know, the having less competition Mm. In, uh, in the mobile space. And you couldn't really just cancel the build out of the mobile business. Otherwise, Sims would say, well, hang on, you're just mm. trying to do that to get away with it and therefore yeah. less competition anyway. So this seems, this seems like a timely opportunity. <laughs> a um, bit too uh, coincidental, do you think? Oh, yeah, but it seems very Tio-ish. <laughs> so, so we have to explain it. Tio-ish? Yeah, Tio-ish. I mean, it seems like, you what's, know. What's Tio-ish? Tio-ish is like, you know, being opportunistic, you know, taking, you know, those, you know, making those bold moves and uh, being on top of your game. This is so like, of course, you're yeah. referencing the CEO, David Tio or yeah. TPG. So yeah. something Tio-ish is, is uh, well, a this, I just made it up, but I mean, I mean, <laughs> I like but, it. I could catch on. I, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think I think he as as he's been a, he's an awesome entrepreneur, yeah, and, you know, and you know, building a network from scrappy stuff. So, uh, I mean, I mean, I think this this seems very logical. Um, if I was a Telstra, if I was Telstra, I wouldn't be so sure that this is going to actually change any. Okay. For them. Um, I mean, there's still going to be competition. In fact, I would think that actually the Vodafone uh, TPG combo would benefit from the fact that, you know, uh, TPG would bring complementary capabilities in uh, in the backhaul and so on and so forth, yeah. right? Which which Vodafone has been using, but I think there'll be some synergies there, some cost reductions there. Mm-hmm. So Vodafone could actually be, in theory, um, uh, more aggressive. But of course, you know, Vodafone being Vodafone, Vodafone having controlling <laughs> stake, you know, Vodafone could, you know, decide to, you know, be nice, right? And, and they all, all three could play nice. And then, you know, it could be just like Woolies and Coles uh, <laughs> until we get Aldi. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I think it seems like an overreaction sometimes. You know, like, you know, 7% for Telstra on no news as such for Telstra. This is a lot of people jumping, you know, uh, ahead of anything really happening. Now, to some degree, we should say, though, that jump is kind of just restoring the fall that happened because of the uh, announcement in the first okay. place, right? So, so at some <laughs> level, no one's saying TP, Tesla's going from, from great to awesome all of a sudden because mm. of this great news. They're kind of saying, well, we kind of bid the share price down because we didn't really like the idea of them competing mm. with TPG. Mm. Now that's kind of going away. Whatever pessimism we built in in the first place, maybe it's just gone away. Maybe mm. it's not Tesla's going to be awesome, just less impacted than maybe mm. we previously thought. Okay. Good to better. You don't think so? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some rationale there. I, I think there's some rationale there. Like, again, I mean, th- this is something going to be fascinating to follow. You know, three years from now, we'll, mm. we'll have a we, we have a clear p- view uh, <laughs> yeah. of what what's going on, right? Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's interesting. If I I got to say, so I'm a Telstra shareholder. Full disclosure, and, and it is a recommendation of ours at Motley Fool Share Advisor. I I am much much more worried about a TPG, a David Teo led TPG competing with Telstra that I am with a TPG as part of a Vodafone business. And, of course, we should remember that they've got to pay an $800 million, I think it is, special dividend out, TPG this is, to shareholders yeah. to get small enough so that it's a minority partner in this deal. In other words, yeah. Vodafone wants to be the wants to be the, have the whip hand. Yeah. To do that, TPG has got to get rid of some assets so they can be small enough to be less than half. Yeah. 
I, I'm, Vodafone hasn't exactly covered itself in glory and it hasn't shown itself to be a particularly aggressive price fighting brand. Yeah. I, 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 but maybe this will change it, right? You, we don't know, right? Uh, maybe this could change all, all it. All of a sudden, you think TV, uh, Vodafone's uh, well, DNA changes and it wants to well, start Well, not just the DNA, fighting. right? I mean, something changed in, in terms of, you know, you've got a, a huge other asset mm. base that you can leverage, right? I think, maybe, you know, again, we don't know. We don't. It's hard to know. I would bet against it. I think, I think the, I don't know about, I don't know about 8% necessarily, the, the, the percentages are arbitrary and, to some degree, just the, again, they always represent just the market's uh, propensity to sell and buy on any given day. Uh, but as a Telstra shareholder, I'm much, much happier with a Vodafone-owned TPG than a TPG-owned Vodafone. Mm-hmm. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And moving from, what, what was it? <laughs> A Vodafone-owned TPG and, and maybe lack of competition, or uh, can I can I can I create this wonderful segue a lot better than this? I don't think so. That's about as good as oh, it's, it's working. Can you help me? Uh, no. Okay. No. Out of my own there. All right. We're going to talk about very quickly the Banking Royal Commission, and we're not going to talk about it in a lot of detail because, as you said, mate, when the interim report came down, there were more questions than answers. Mm, I love that. We assume <laughs> that come Monday afternoon. There'll be more answers than questions. Hopefully. Because this Monday, the 4th of February, is when the government will release the Banking Royal Commission report. Now, Commissioner Hain does give the report to the government uh, on Friday. And depending on when you're hearing this, it may be Thursday afternoon, it may be Friday. Friday, the report is due to the government. They've said, oh, we'll release it on Monday afternoon. Give them a nice little bit of time to prepare their defences and mm. leak some selective details should they choose to and have the have the political responses ready for when it comes time. Mm. I, if I'm a betting man, and I'm not particularly, I have to occasionally, uh, I would imagine the government will not only release the report, but also release what they're going to do about it at the very same time mm. to remove any potentially political uh, football components of this when it comes to the election. So we'll see what happens politically. But report-wise, as I said, Jessica Ruvine called this a, a report of Tolkien proportions, assuming that banking will never be the same again. I don't know how much she knows from the inside, how much she's just uh, speculating, imagining, guessing. But this could potentially be a big, big, big change to banking. Or it could be just a little bit of minor kind of, you know, facelift, nip and tuck surgery. Well, I, I wouldn't hold my breath for a big change. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't yeah. think the commissioner will do it or you think the banks will, or the, the politicians well, well, will see it? I think the commissioner, for example, uh, uh, my understanding is the commissioner doesn't have any uh, power to actually change things. Correct. He has the power to make recommendations, Correct. right? Yep. Then there's going to be some government that has to actually do something mm-hmm. about it, some regulation, some legislation, maybe, you know, some twisting of the arms, right? <laughs> this, yeah. Uh, and who's going to do it, right? I mean, it's yeah. hard to know because we're going to have a change, you know, uh, an election, right? We might have a change in government and therefore, you know, these reports could just be, you know, put under the desk. Who knows, right? Surely I mean, not. you know, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think banking as an industry is so old. Mm. Um, I, I expect intram- incremental changes. Okay. And uh, um, I think they will, you know, they, they will do better to, you know, not charge dead people and, you know. And, <laughs> no, and, no, or, not, not charge fees. No, and, and not, not charge, you know, yeah. not charge fees for, you know, <laughs> don't, don't have these nasty ways of trying to, you know, sell insurance. Yeah, giving crappy financial like. advice. Yeah, crap. It's all those, and maybe some of those things will change, mm-hmm. but how much and to yeah. what degree? Uh, I will remain skeptical until I see the change. <laughs> so, I'm going to take the other side of that, mate. Not just to be controversial, not just to be painful for the sake of the podcast. I, I reckon, and the reading of the political tea leaves is the question here. Mm. This is this report is being released at a wonderful. If you if you want change in the banking industry, there is no better time for this report to come out because it's mm. coming out probably something around three months before the next election. Mm-hmm. And neither party, I don't think, in this political environment can be can, wants to be seen, can afford to be seen as being soft on the banks. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that any party of either stripe, and again, this is not a political view, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's real politic in terms of what's likely to happen politically, mm. election wise. I don't reckon either party can afford to not be seen to be 
throwing the book at the banks. Mm-hmm. Right now, I think if, if one party was coming out and say, oh, no, they're not that bad. Look, we're not mm-hmm. going to do mo- – we don't understand what Commissioner Haynes saying, but we're not really that tough on them. We'll, we'll give them a break. Mm. I think that's electoral poison is my view, and mm. I think – I would bet that almost all, the vast, vast majority of the recommendations are actually taken on by both parties. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if one of the parties, and it's likely to be Labor just because of the the political stripes, goes a bit further and says, that's not enough, we're going to do this as well, mm-hmm. and almost challenges the government to take the same sort of hard-on hard on banks approach. Given their DNA, um, they, they fought the Royal Commission for a long time, the, the current government, um, it, it might be easy to, to, to kind of try and drive a bit of a wedge there. I would, I would be... If I was a betting man, again, I'd be in the camp of they will take Commissioner Haynes' recommendations and put almost all of them into place and maybe even add a couple of extra ones just for good measure. Well, that might actually be awesome. Now, and of course, it depends on what the, those recommendations are. So, so uh, I will wait. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. From some of our lesser favorite companies. Mm-hmm. To a couple of my least favorite companies, but ones that you put. No, that's not true. But I, I, I like, I like to just ramp up the drama a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. Two of your favorite U.S. companies reported this week, mate. Mm-hmm. We had, we had uh, a fruit company and uh, and a and a, um, a fancy, a fancy wishful thinking space company or something. Mm-hmm. You'll tell me what it is. Um, two, two of the businesses that you personally own uh, that you're big, you're a big, big fan of. Mm-hmm. One, I think you called the best company in the world earlier this week on Skype with mm-hmm. our, in our group chat. Um, Apple. And Tesla, and mm-hmm. I, I'm loath to bring it up because we don't have 45 minutes to talk about them. But I will trust you to keep this short and concise. Yeah. All right. But it is important because these are is Apple. Apple's not maybe not the biggest company anymore. But it's one of the biggest companies in the world. Tesla is certainly, I would argue, the most innovative large company in the world. I've um, fallen behind, you know, the Amazon in our bet right now. But anyways, yeah, I'm going to win over the I, long I term. I wasn't going to bring that so, up, mate. But just because I'm going to win money from you for Amazon yeah. being bigger than Apple in two years' time, that's, that's, that's we'll fine. We shall see. We that's shall fine. see. We shall see. Um, um, you gave me odds of twenty-five to or two, two and a half to one too, which was nice. Was I'm, that, I'm was getting that? twenty-five bucks from my ten bucks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure, I might as well spend it now. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk about me. I'm going to talk about you, and we'll let yeah. you talk about your companies um, again because they are big, big, important. Kind of the size, the scope, the aims. Frankly, the the disruption. Also, what well, this is a little bit about investors and investor sentiment. So, just give us the quick thumbnail sketch of Apple's results and, and kind of how you're thinking about the business, given that. We had an earnings downgrade while mm-hmm. you were away. I wanted to talk about it a little bit on the podcast. I didn't stick the boot in too far. Mm-hmm. Um, where is Apple sitting? What's the future look like? Tell me, tell me the Apple story right now. So uh, I think the earnings, uh, earnings downgrade for Apple was disappointing. But you know, in all of that news, w- one thing that got you know hidden and didn't people didn't talk about is that you know earnings hit an all time high, earnings per share, mm-hmm. and that's because of you know the capital capital allocation policy, right? So this mm. company remains, you know, <laughs> like a cash cow. It's generating so much money. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Mm. Now, the, the disappointment aside, I think, you know, the way I look at Apple is mobile is not going to go anywhere, but I think we have sort of reached, you know, peak peak smartphone in terms of, you know, how how often people are going to upgrade right. and you know, how how's that business going to grow so that business is not going to go away but it's going to be it's going to be a stable sort of you know pe- people upgrading maybe 3 years or so on average or something like that mm-hmm. but its base is growing it has got 900 million phones to disclose first time uh, in this quarter yeah, yeah. and and that grew 100 million right think about all the people you know i change my phone pretty frequently somebody buys my phone mm-hmm. and then you know that person gets added to the ecosystem maybe that person sells their phone you know somebody else gets it so there's a little big gray market there yeah. so that's that but ticks i'll give you some things to think about i think the future here for apple is in multiple different things one of the things that doesn't get talked about is wearables mm-hmm. wearables was up 50 percent mm-hmm. 
uh, year over year, the size of the wearable business is that of a Fortune 200 business, mm-hmm. right? So if this was any other company, they would be jumping, right? Just because it's Apple and it generates a huge amount of revenue, it's a problem. But <laughs> relatively tiny to still relatively tiny, right? In the overall scheme of things for Apple itself. Yeah, for Apple, it's, 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 it's tiny or yeah. small for Apple, not yeah. for anybody else, right? Yeah. But, but it talks to, you know, so uh, uh, let me give you an analogy here. The iPhone is where the puck is. Mm-hmm. But the wearables is where the puck, you know, you, you're skating to the puck. That's where the puck is actually going, right? And I think I think they are doing a fantastic job of basically winning that race. Mm-hmm. That opens up many opportunities, including, you know, Tim Cook has gone on record and said that, you know, one of the biggest contributions for Apple is going to be in healthcare. Right. That's a huge market opportunity. And we are seeing the first signs of that with the new Apple Watch, which has gotten, you know, uh, ECG capability mm-hmm. built into it. Uh, so I, I think Apple is, you know, over the long term, Apple is going to do just fine. Um, <laughs> its services business is growing it's got nice decent and growing margins on the services business mm-hmm. um yeah I, i'm you know i'm a shareholder i'm not worried about apple you know i'm very happy to hold apple it's one of those things you know it's not going to 10 bag from here but it's mm-hmm. going to be a very nice market beater over the long term you know nice dividends to you know bank along the way i'm gonna ask you one question because we do need to move on mm-hmm. uh, the headline in our own tweet from the motley fool this week said apple's iphone revenue drops 15 percent services business revenue up 19 percent no, no, it's not service revenue. It's a non-iPhone. So everything but iPhone actually grew, including Macs and iPads. Right. So uh, yeah. So is that enough? To, uh, so even even uh, how do you get from that to a long-term market beta? Given, and I'll, I will use the Telstra reference only. I know you hate it, but just just to in, in the context of you know, its landline business drags, its mobile business is growing, but not fast enough to offset the drag. Can Apple really beat the market until? That, that kind of balance is redressed? Yeah, so I, I think I'll point out a couple of things. One is that I think it's, it's the... So Apple had a very good last year, mm-hmm. right? And I think, I think what people forget is that, you know, there is an S cycle and the non-S cycle. So, you know, this cycle, they released the so, iPhone... Sorry, when you say S cycle? I, I'll explain it. Thanks, so you released the iPhone ten S this mm-hmm. year. Right. Last year, you released the iPhone ten. Now, iPhone ten brought a lot of new features, right? Typically, I think we are, where we are in the iPhone in in the smartphone evolution, mm-hmm. you're going to see big improvements every two years. Right. Okay. So you should. I think the way to look at it is you need to look at the average of the two. I mean, you know, I didn't expect actually growth, substantial growth this year in the mm-hmm. iPhone because you know those people who wanted to have the newest iPhone already have it, mm. right? And you, if you have the ten S, it's not really much different from having the ten. But having the ten from having the eight or the seven or mm. whatever it was. Was, was actually a big step up, right. right? And that that matters. So I think there's growth there uh, to be had, and I think a- Apple probably needs to do a little bit more in terms of what it is doing in emerging markets, right? It's mm-hmm. one of the markets that they have sort of not really played very well. Um, but uh, you know, I'm not really worried about that. That doesn't really bother me. I think but can it beat the market that only grows significantly every two years? Is that, is that enough to deliver market beating performance? Yeah, yes, it can because I think you remember. I think what we are forgetting here is its cash balance, net cash balance is 130 billion dollars mm-hmm. and it is generating free cash flow about 50 billion a year that's a lot of money even if its revenue stagnates mm-hmm. it's generating that kind of cash that can basically keep buying back its shares at right, some point okay. it's going to go grow again right at some From point buybacks if nothing else well no, sometimes at some point the other parts of the business are going to actually become bigger Right at that at that point, or or at least big enough that mm-hmm. it's going to start offsetting it. Right at that point, you'd see revenue growth, some operating leverage, and then you'd see this you know all this chunk of um, shares that have disappeared. So I think the capital allocation is a big deal here for Apple. 
that people good. need to remember. All right, mate, I'm going to ask you about Tesla now because I just I hate myself apparently. Mm-hmm, and I, I hate mm-hmm, to listen so much. Mm-hmm. My apologies, I have to do this. It's in Doc's contract. I have to ask him about Tesla every six mm-hmm. months or so. Uh, the results were out there, fresh, hot off the presses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was doing my work. I got bombarded, got bombarded by about 84 different Skype messages. I thought, ah, oh, Tesla's results are out, mm-hmm. and they were. You were sharing a lot of the detail with us, including some of what's been happening. Uh, you you even criticised Elon, which was unusual for you. So I will ask you a little bit about that. Yeah. But what do you what do you make of the Tesla results? I, Is this a business now that's that's permanently out of trouble? Is this is, has it got past the business at risk stage? I thought these results were actually fantastic. Fantastic in the sense that, you know, they generated about $900 million of free cash flow, right? Um, they've improved margins. And I think the way, I looked at the forecast for 2019, and I thought the 2019 forecast was interesting. If you actually look at the run rate of car production at the end of this quarter, mm-hmm. they're probably at about, you know, 320,000, 330,000 cars a year. Right. They're only projecting at the lower end to go to 360,000 cars. Okay. Right. That's not that's not Elon. <laughs> Elon would be prom- promising, you know, maybe <laughs> that would double or triple or something like that. <laughs> right? So so have the, have the have the accountants taken control or is it or is it actually at the end of the kind of explosive growth stage? Uh, I think Elon probably has had, you know, has figured that the the thing that, you know, the bogey in the stock is is the shorts and the and the, and the bogey is the debt that is, you know, going to mature soon yeah. or, or the bondholders um, uh, that have, uh, you know, uh, they're going to ask for payment. And right? they're going to have to pay it back. The share price is still too low. But, you know, yeah, but they have to pay it back. But, you know, cash is at 3.7 billion. Cash right. has increased again two right. quarters in a row. And um, they're going to start delivering to Europe and China. So, and the European market for this car, I would bet, is at least 2x or 3x of the market in America, largely because, you know, Europe has got smaller roads in America. <laughs> <laughs> the Model 3. So, I right, guess, okay. you know, it, it and and what if and you know it's only projected ten percent increase. So I think if you look at it in totality, mm. the comparing twenty eighteen to twenty nineteen, there's approximately going to be at the lower end maybe forty percent to fifty percent revenue growth. Mm-hmm. There's going to only be ten percent total operating expense increase. Mm-hmm. That's a huge leverage, and they've been profitable both this quarter and the previous quarter. It's kind of I got to say, I, you know, as much as a, as an investor, while Everyone was focusing on they have to pay cash rather than shares to settle that outstanding debt. When you haven't got the cash, that's a big problem. Mm. When you have got the cash, though, it actually stops you diluting current shareholders. It's actually, yeah, it's actually a lot of benefit. If the company is, is going to be successful over the long term, as much as Musk was kind of hoping at one point that he could just give them the shares and not yeah. have to use the cash, it's kind of one of those problems where it's kind of eating your broccoli, right? Yeah. It, it, you might not like to doing it and you, and you want the cash and you had to do some weird things like yeah. cut, cut workforce and stuff to make it happen. But at some level, if you can stay afloat and be prosperous a couple of years out, yeah. not having to dilute current shareholders is actually a win for the current shareholders, even though yeah. it doesn't feel like it at the time. Yeah. So what, what I'm saying is the shorts have actually made the longs very happy here by basically pulling the strings on Elon, not letting him do what he would want to do, <laughs> actually getting to a company that looks more like, you know, a real company that's scaling instead of a company that's promising a gazillion things, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, maybe the shorts have done themselves a disservice, but I'll be very happy for them to continue to help uh, my portfolio. Uh, yeah, so I was actually very happy with what I saw. It was it was an awesome result uh, all around, in, in my view. Good to hear. I'm not yet ready to buy Tesla stock, but I desperately hope you're, it's You're successful. missing out. I hope you're missing successful. out on the next greatest company that's going to walk the planet. Mate, Berkshire you, you, Hathaway you, is more you, than enough for me. You, you don't you. want to miss out two times in a row. I've, that, already, that's just I've already got Berkshire, mate. I don't need anything else, but thank you anyway. All right. Okay. Well, I, I do hope he's successful, though, because I, the, the planet needs EVs to be successful, potentially the energy changes that he's bringing forward as well. So I think a healthy Tesla, a successful, frankly, even a surviving Tesla that just simply goads other competitors to come to the party, 
I think it's a massive, massive boost. For I, I'm going to actually make one comment for our Australian listeners. You know, if you if you read the <laughs> Tesla letter, yes, the number of times Australia has mentioned that is actually quite few, right? Because of the uh, the plant um, in the battery plant at Hornsdale, it's and that's Australia, actually become yeah. that's become a reference for Elon Musk. So right. you know, we're right up there. So you know, we should all support him. <laughs> I think that's a spurious reason. But we'll, move on. we'll move on. It's a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And while we finish off, we're going to dip once into the Foolish Mailbag and answer one of your questions. We get plenty, as I say, all the time. Please do send them through on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU, at TMF Scott P, or at Ania Barn Mahanti, or you can email us info at fool.com.au. We'll throw them in the pile. We try and get as many as we can. The great news is we're getting more than we can deal with at the moment, but we haven't dropped any off the list. We will definitely do a mailbag special episode soon. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to answer one from Chris. Now, Chris says, uh, hi, gents. First of all, I love the podcast. Excellent. Awesome. That's why Chris is getting mentioned. I, we I, love I Chris. Kid. I kid, I promise. Um, <laughs> is I'm a newbie share investor, and I'm getting a lot of benefit from listening to you guys. Tick. I'm also a recent subscriber to Share Advisor and Dividend Service, double tick, and investing for the long term, tick. How good is that? That's like triple tick. He says, is that enough to have this question read out on the podcast? Well, that, <laughs> now you know, Chris. The answer is absolutely yes. So he says, I have two questions. They're reasonably quick, so we'll get through them. I hope I know you don't give financial advice, so yes, we can only give general advice. We do give financial advice, but only general, not personal. Uh, but what is the best way to structure a portfolio with high dividend yielding shares versus low yielding stocks? Should it be 50-50 or weighted one way or the other? I still have at least 15 years of work before I can retire, so I'm not relying on generating income through dividends. I think I probably know your answer, Doc, but let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's take a step back. In general terms, mm. how should investors be thinking about their mix of dividend and non-dividend paying stocks? So, you know, my answer for this is if you've got like, you know, 15, 20 years of work ahead of you, right? Mm -hmm. I would be investing in growth, growth stocks because, you know, a lot I'm of... I'm surprised. Yeah. Why would you? <laughs> uh, you know, invest in, uh, you know, extreme opportunities. <laughs> um, a little bit of self-promotion there. A little but, 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 you know, like, you know, I would ex invest in the growth stocks. I mean, these might pay lower dividends. Like, you know, ShareVisor might have companies that pay 2% dividend instead of 6% dividend. Yep. Many of our 6% dividend companies are basically not growing, yep. right? Uh, they're paying back everything to their shareholders, which is, which is great. But if you don't need the income, invest in growth stocks. These will multiply over time. They can multi-bag. And then if you need income, just sell some stock. You don't need the income to come directly from uh, you know, from the dividends yeah, and the franking, right? You can actually generate your income by selling some stocks when you need to. But if you've got 20 years, I mean, I would be investing in, in growth. So that, that's what I would do. I'm incredibly um, surprised. But this, again, it's general <laughs> advice, not a personal <laughs> advice. Everybody's situation is different. So Doc, um, is, a, Doc is a growth investor. I, I, will, I will counter that only for the sake of giving the other side of the argument. I tend to agree, actually, mate, with your point. Mm. Um, but I will say, a company like Altria, for example, that many people will know by its previous name of Philip Morris. Mm -hmm. If that sounds familiar, that's because they are, I think, the world's largest cigarette maker, mm -hmm. if not one of the biggest. They are the best performing company on the New York Stock Exchange, the US markets, over, I want to say, 60 years now. Uh, and a large amount of that has been because of dividend reinvestment. And Chris asked about that, which we'll get to. Mm. But effectively, you know, Altria is not a growth stock in any way, shape or form. In fact, their, their business in the development has been declining and, and most of us with a public health benefit would say, thank goodness. Um, but they have still, they've been the best company, you know, best investment on the, on the New York Stock Exchange for a long time because they've got a very high dividend yield. And if you simply reinvested those dividends, you've beaten every other company on the, on the US exchanges um, over, that, over that extended period of time. Now, there's some survivorship bias there. Um, some of the companies we talk about haven't been around for that long, so you mm. simply can't have that record. So there is some sense of, you know, you've got to have been around for that long to be better than Altria for that long. Mm. 
but the you know the, the ability to of, for companies to utilize that cash or uh, in growth stories as doc says or to pay you a dividend you can simply reinvest that dividend and benefit from that growth a little bit of what apple's doing to some degree they're not paying a dividend but they're doing a share buyback they're kind of different stripes of the same sort of thing when it comes to shareholder total return so if you know if, if you take a high yielding stock that is growing moderately, not necessarily really quickly, but certainly not slowly, um, you will find you'll get a material benefit in reinvesting those dividends on your own, even if the company's not reinvesting in its own business and therefore paying you a lower yield. So I think what I would say to to, to kind of counter Doc's point only for the sake of sharing a a broader perspective is look at total return, not the dividends or the growth, right? So if you look out 15 years, 10 years, you're saying 15 years, Chris, uh, again, this is not personal advice, but if you look at 15 years and say, What's likely to give me the better return? If I took all of the dividends from company X, reinvested them, where, where do I think my total return would be? Or if I said, well, I'll take one that pays no dividend or a tiny dividend and the business itself grows at really quick rates you know, over 15 years, where do I think I'll be? That's kind of the way we, we talk about thinking about it. I wouldn't go for any any sense of a pre-mixed option. Don't buy 50-50 or 75-25 or 60-40. There's no need to do that. Whether or not you get a dividend, as Doc says, isn't really important when it comes to income because you can simply sell some of your portfolio to fund any income needs or any spending needs you have. This is very much a story of where is the best total return from? And really, you shouldn't care whether it's a dividend or not. What you should care about is which company is going to give me the best possible financial return over the very long term. And that's the time frame you're looking at. Have I done that decent justice, Doc? I think that's, that's fair. I, I'll point one thing out, though. Sure. Like, you know, the, the Philip Morris is probably, in terms of dividend reinvestment, might be actually an exception. I mean, it, it is. Yeah, very it, you know, So I think the thing is that you know, we need to think, I think, as you said, think about the individual company and yep. think about their opportunity. Yep. And I think that's, that's the right approach. Yeah, you know, for, for what it's worth, Berkshire Hathaway, for example, my largest holding, doesn't pay a dividend at all because Buffett says, well, I can keep the money and reinvest yeah. it for you. Thanks very much. On the flip side, companies with too much cash that can't find good investment opportunities they really probably. should give it back to their shareholders yeah. rather than keeping it for themselves and potentially making stupid acquisitions. Yeah. The second part of Chris's question as we as we close out, the other question I have that relates is to the first is reinvestment plans or dividend reinvestment plans. You mm-hmm. might hear the phrase or the, the term DRIP, D-R-P, D-R-I-P. Um, do I sign up for extra units of stock or do I take the money? I'd be keen to hear your thoughts. So, Doc, assuming... You're a dividend investor. Let's, mm-hmm. let's just let's just go later. Make answer, believe. You already answered this one. Well, I'm saying, but but should you should you not should should you actually sign up for a DRP for every company that offers it? Uh no, because I mean, again, you have to you have to look at. I, I think the thing is that some companies are good for DRP and some are not. I, mm-hmm. I think you know, again, it depends on what your perspective is of the company over the long term. So I think if you think that you know um, that stock is um, it's a good value, mm-hmm. then DRP is good. If the stock is, you know, not a good value, then maybe DRP is not good. Right? <laughs> so. I think I think that's right. I think that that's I, I don't as much as you so I answered. I don't believe in DRPs as a matter of course, unless you're the sort of investor who needs just because you know yourself to be set and forget. Yeah. If you're someone who's just like you know what, I don't want to have to deal with the dividends, or frankly, if I if I get them, I'll probably spend them. Hmm. Um, or, or you know, you don't want to have to worry about where they go. There are many many worse things than just simply reinvesting yeah. the dividends in the company that pays them. That that's 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 a, a very very sound decent okay thing to do. Yeah. Generally speaking, though, the question would be, if I got, um, if, if you picked 10 of your friends and each of them gave you a dollar and you had to then invest that $10 in the friend that was going to give you the next best return over the next year, for example, right? Maybe they're a, a worker, a professional gambler, or a, you know, whatever they do, right? Let's just say, let's say they're, you're banking, betting on one of them getting a pay rise next year. Mm. You probably wouldn't give them all the dollar back each and say, all right, off you go, you know, hopefully all you get more pay rise next year. You'd probably look at each of them and say, well... Jenny's a Jenny's a hard worker. She's doing really well in her career. I might give her five of those ten dollars rather than rather than just give her back the dollar she gave me and hope she can make more money out of it. And that's a clumsy example. But generally speaking, as Doc says, if you're giving back money to the companies that pay you just because they paid you, um, there's a very very good chance there are simply better ideas out there. And if I had ten companies in my portfolio, I'd want to take the cash and reinvest it in the couple of ideas, either existing or new, 
that I thought were the best opportunities. So if you can make yourself not spend the money, and we should, we would always say pay your dividends into an investment account, specifically a, a special account that oversits over the side. You Don't pay it back into your own savings account or transaction account because you will spend it. If you can trust yourself to do that and you're interested enough and, and keen enough, take the money and then look for the next best opportunity to reinvest that cash. If you don't, don't want to, can't, whatever, if it's just simply easier, then absolutely by all means sign up to the DRP because you'll probably do yourself a favor. In 5, 10, 15 years, all of a sudden you realize you've got a whole lot more money there, a mm. whole lot more shares than you had originally. That stuff also does compound pretty nicely. Well, one of the plus I'll say is DRP is really good for uh, if you have an index, for example. If you own an yeah, index, DRP is really useful yeah, there. Perfect. Yeah, perfect for that case. In fact, that's exactly what you should do, right? Yeah. If, you, if you're going to go to the, the trouble, not the trouble, but if you're going to choose an index because you want yeah. the broad market exposure, then you mm-hmm. kind of want more of that. Yeah, and then you just regularly reinvest your dividends. There you go. Yeah. Doc, that wraps us up for this week's podcast. But before we go, don't forget, listeners, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app, of course, if you're one of the more enlightened amongst us. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes if you have to. Uh, And please do tell your friends. We're sure they could do with a little foolish straight talk too. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to www.fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week. Actually, we're back a little bit sooner than that, but stay tuned for a little bit of a surprise with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.